I'm really thrilled to welcome you all to the second Amos Vogel Lecture. Thank you to HBO, who is the presenting sponsor of New York Film Festival's talks. And thank you to Turner Classic Movies, sponsor of Dry Long So and the second Amos Vogel Lecture. Amos Vogel, if you don't already know, was a pioneering curator critic and one of the founders of the New York Film Festival. You may know him as the founder of Cinema 16, which was the most influential film society in America, or as the author of Film as a Subversive Art, which is kind of a Bible for committed cinephiles. And I'll just say that there are copies available at the kiosk outside if you wish to purchase one on your way out. The film culture that flourishes in New York City today is really truly owed to Amos Vogel and his undying commitment to all the radical possibilities of film form. Last year, we celebrated Amos Vogel's centenary at the New York Film Festival with a special retrospective, and we inaugurated the Amos Vogel Lecture as a space to continually, annually interrogate his legacy and think about what it means in the present for artists, thinkers, and curators working today. And this year, as Maddie and I were considering honorees for uh, the second Amos Vogel lecture, one name immediately came to mind, and that is Colleen Smith. <laughs> Colleen is an acclaimed filmmaker, interdisciplinary artist, and scholar known for the political rigor and experimental imaginary of her work. If you saw the new restoration of Dry Long So Today across the street, which we're uh, premiering at the New York Film Festival, you know exactly what I'm talking about. That's a landmark film from 1998 that still resonates incredibly today. Her films and installations have featured in museums and galleries across the world, and she has received many awards, including the Rockefeller Media Arts Award, Chicago Exploratadia Award, the Rauschenberg Residency, most recently the Heinz Award, which was Pretty cool. We truly believe that her work epitomizes both the ethics of care and the commitment to subversion that guided Amos Vogel's mission. And we're so thrilled to have her here today to deliver the second Amos Vogel lecture. We're also thrilled to have an incredible guest moderator with us today, all the way from Los Angeles, Jacqueline Stewart, the director and president of the Academy Museum of Motion Pictures, an amazing scholar and ATCM host. She will be doing the talk back with Colleen after the lecture, so stick around. Now I'm gonna hand it over to Colleen. I want to begin with Mr. Vogel's words. Subversion in cinema starts when the theater darkens and the screen lights up. For cinema is a place of magic where psychological and environmental factors combine to create an openness to wonder and suggestion and unlocking of the unconscious. It is a shrine at which modern rituals rooted in atavistic memories and subconscious desires are acted out in darkness and seclusion from the outer world the power of the image, our fear of it, the thrill that pulls us toward it is real. I, I first read those words 35 years ago. Um, um, and when the folks at uh, New York Film Festival asked me, invited me to do this talk, 
Um, of course, the first thing I did was head to my bookshelf to find my copy of Vogel's book, and I couldn't find it. Um, I probably loaned it to someone a long, long time ago, and I'm not sure when I last sat down to read it in its entirety, but I did read it all of last week. And um, I realized then that um, as a young filmmaker, I had internalized much of this book. Um, and I so much so that I had failed to distinguish which of my codes for filmmaking were my own and which I had gleaned from film as subversion. Um, um, and then today at lunch, I was recalling that there were entire chapters, once heavily focusing on like, European and Soviet cinema that I pretty much ignored as a young student, feeling that the writer was in fact ignoring me. And while I do wonder about what may or may not have had the opportunity to grace the screens at Cinema 16, I do not doubt that Mr. Vogel was speaking to what he was seeing and anticipating things yet to come. And I'd like to think of myself and others like me as part of that yet to come. Um, as a teacher, I'm making a note of this um, uh, to remind myself and my students of this chasm between um, like a foreign context of, of a written text and the way um, that it can feel like reciprocating this experience of invisibility one might feel seems justified, you know, like the book is ignoring me, so I'm going to ignore the book. But really try, trying to meet the text where it is and, and when it was has a real fruits and real treasures. And that's kind of what I experienced last week when I just dug into it. Um, I'm going to play the part of this film and I just, I'm really excited about talking to Jackie. So all these clips that I am including, I'm going to cut them short and I apologize because I just want to get to the part where we're all talking. Um, so I'm going to read while this film, which is silent, is playing. Uh, Mr. Vogel's words also reminded me, and I'm so grateful for this reminder, that my investment in the moving image has something to do with what happens when moving images are being recorded. What happens between us, the makers of movies in the world? Um, for me, filming on location is an opportunity for social participation as opposed to the typical film methodologies that enact conquest and ex extraction. And when I learned that film was a language, uh, all those 35 years ago, I very naively decided that maybe the vocabulary could be expanded or altered and that the formal registries of film could change and therefore one's experience of cinema could change too. You see, back when Mr. Vogel was watching films and recording his thoughts and running Cinema 16, I was just a kid in Sacramento whose primary babysitter was the television. And most of what I watched very very actively assaulted and diminished me and everybody that I loved. So when I learned that it wasn't media that was doing the assaulting, but people who made it, I thought maybe I could make something that I had never seen before. Maybe I could make a moving images that would not assault or diminish me or anyone else. This is just a studio shot. And um, I'm supposed to be, I'm, I'm really excited that I can actually see my notes. I was afraid that I couldn't, but there's gonna be a moment where I'm lost. So bear with me while I pull out my notes. Mr. Vogel also says that subversive cinema could not exist without enemies. <laughs> I love that. I love that. Any pessimism regarding the failure of one talent or the co-option of another is outweighed by the spectacular flow of new generational talent and fresh hot anger. That is a quote. I was an angry young person and I'm an angry old person. Uh, back when Mr. Vogel's predictions felt like an invitation to me, an invitation that I received and I gratefully accepted. The image here is what's happening in my studio right now. I'm making some procession banners um, that are gonna be used as props in a film. 
which is typically my way of, or reason even, to make a film. The messages on these banners vary, um, but cumulatively they amount to a celebration of refusal and resistance, a resistance against wanton extraction, willful ignorance, and grotesque abuse of this planet in, in the quest for wealth and resources. I would not call myself subversive. I, I, it's, I, I don't know why that's hard for me. Um, but based on Vogel's definition, I think I really do kind of fit the bill. And it's a good thing since I'm here talking about him with you. Um, but I think about this, this idea of um, needing an antagonist. <laughs> it's just, that's such a cinematic position to take. Um, I've been experimenting with some time, for some time with making films or a kind of filmmaking that attempts to use the tactics of improvisational music, music that's made in time together um, with, with other musicians, um, um, methods of uh, making moving images that make everyone present a part of what's possible as opposed to objects manipulated in service of a single vision. Sometimes these experiments succeed, but they often fail. Um, so there's a lot of films I've made that no one will ever see. And I, it's, I, I'm often tempted, tempted to just even destroy the hard drives they're stored on, but I won't do that. Um, this clip I'm sharing now is, um, is another procession that I was designing for film, and it went horribly wrong, um, which we can talk about later. But this clip, with all its glitches and hiccups, comes really close to succeeding in this idea of like um, all of us together making something. Um, and since it ha also has banners, I thought I'd show it. I'm, I might end it early, though, so forgive me if I just cut it off. Interior take 1A.
goes on to um, all the way down the street, uh, but I'll stop there. Um, before playing this next clip, uh, I want to say that October 20th will be Sun Ra's Day of Becoming. It's the day that he officially changed his name from Herman Blount to Sun Ra. Um, and I, uh, that, that, that factoid like collided with my time reading um, Mr. Vogel's um, book, uh, where he says, um, in the last analysis, every work of art, to the extent that it is original and breaks with the past instead of repeating it, is subversive. By using new form and content, it opposes the old, if only by implication, serves as an eternally dynamic force for change, and is in a permanent state of becoming. It is therefore the triumph, the arm, irony, and the inevitable fate of the subversive creator as she succeeds immediately to supersede herself. For at the moment of victory, she is already dated. <laughs> he, he's like, I just love his quote. They're so good. Um, Art can never take the place of social action, and its effectiveness may indeed be seriously impaired by restrictions imposed by the power structure, but its task remains forever the same to change consciousness. I'm just gonna read that again. The task remains forever the same, to change consciousness. When this occurs, it is so momentous an achievement, even with a single human being, that it provides both justification and explanation of subversive art. And this reminds me that this is a person writing at a time when this kind of work had to be justified, uh, that it didn't even have a place like not even the art world uh, to exist comfortably and that people like him had to make space for it. It's, it's important to remember. Things change. This next clip is, it's really long and I'm, I'm gonna cut it uh, too soon, but I'm gonna, I just wanna keep it moving. <laughs>
They were, they were like my primary collaborators in Chicago for about four years, and I, I still miss them. I like have dreams, and I'm like, want to call the marching band director at the high school, hey, want to do another one? Um, um, when this talk began, I asked you to come sit in a cave with me, and all I've done is drag you through these streets. And I'm sorry about that. And I think the contradiction in the way I've structured the talk is, has some kind of enactment of the tensions I feel surging through our world right now. What kind of response should we be having to the state of our country? More voting, more protesting, more TikTok, more tweets? I don't know. I feel exhausted by the way our political body just seems like a clown show. And I'm hopeful. Um, and, and the only hopeful gestures I ever find really um, exist um, outside, on the block, in the city, on the streets, with my neighbors, with my students, my friends, my colleagues. It's the things that we make together, the conversations that we share, that make up the, the society that I want to contribute to. So I guess I was inviting you into the cave so that we could restore ourselves and get ready to get back in those streets. And when we get tired, there will be restoration. There will be art for us. And we can subvert these murderous social orders just by being with each other and making stuff for each other and, and for everyone else. Uh, I, I, that is my hope. That was my hope maybe with this talk. Um, and so the final quote from Vogel is quite long. Um, I have to read the whole thing because these words are more true now than when he wrote them, and this is terrifying. And since we'll have a chance to talk more directly about the work after this, I'd like to end with this. So here we go. The artist finds herself at odds with society's unplanned and cancerous growth and the service of the profit motive and its heedless disregard for human values. Wherever she turns, she sees exploitation and magnificent wealth, heart-rending poverty and colossal waste, the destruction of races and, growing and the growing international trend toward totalitarianism. She sees control of all communication by the few and the rise of new media that holds the technological potential of more repression. She sees the blighted cities, the polluted rivers and oceans, the unbridled exploitation of natural resources, uh, the succession of economic crises, inflation, depressions, and the ever more destructive wars, and the rise as permanent and monstrous institutions of war economies and their intolerable burden upon society as a whole. She witnesses the phenomenon of manipulated democracy and an electorate whose voting power is increasingly denuded of meaning since real control rests elsewhere. Vogel takes us into Marx here, so let's go. It was Marx who, when asked in an interview to characterize the meaning of life in a single word, unhesitatingly replied, struggle. Was it a slip of the tongue that prevented him from limiting this definition to life under capitalism, thus giving it the historical dimension he gave every other phenomenon? Or was it not rather his realization so often expressed in his philosophical writings that the essence of life under all circumstances and all societies was eternal change, the constant transformation of all forms and systems? It is in this sense that the subject of this book, film as a subversive art, will always remain on the agenda, and that these pages are but a rough draft, for the subject of this book is human freedom. At all times and under all conditions, uh, its guardians are the subversives.
Oof. I really, really love that. I'm so grateful that I got to read it and read it to you. Ooh, Colleen, you always blow my mind. That's all I can say. Um, thank you for that. And thank you for putting your work in such beautiful dialogue with Vogel's work. Most poignantly, when you were quoting from the book and saying she, the artist <laughs> she, which I don't, right? <laughs> that, that was, that was a, a melding to. that you did there. I had to. <laughs> in much the same way when you started off talking about how when you first encountered the book, you didn't see yourself reflected in it. Right. You contextualize it. That's his frame of reference. These are, you know, right. the times. Right. But the effortlessness with which you updated it, I suppose we could say, right? To, to put your voice and the voice of other women artists there. Mm -hmm. Just talk about like why you, why right. you felt comfortable doing that. Comfortable, I guess. Um, or not, maybe just why you did it. It's, it's, I think it's necessary like for all of us to uh, have practices that allow us to recognize each other. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. To me, that's about recognition about acknowledging like our differences, mm. Mr. Vogel and I, different generations, different references completely. Yeah. But what I recognized in him was like the same kind of fury and love and belief in the work that we're trying to do. Mm. I recognized it and I believe, I believe that when I read it in his work. Yeah. And to me, that is, I guess, the key of like, how we're all gonna make it together. <laughs> is this practice of recognition, right? Right, right, right. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. So that question of how we're all going to make it together. Um, <laughs> I, I want to read from the book too. You know, okay. I have a quote. All right. Um, and I was really struck that at the start, you kind of questioned whether you were a subversive artist. I can't even say that about laughing. <laughs> Are you a subversive artist? Yes. Okay. And um, in the preface to the 2005 edition, he describes you. In fact, earlier, not you, but you know, Earlier today, we showed Dry Long So, and you talked about your discomfort, if not um, disgust, with the Hollywood mm -hmm. machine. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> One of the things that he says right at the top of the book has to do with what constitutes like a, a true kind of independent spirit. Um, he says uh, that when he's describing the work of people who are trying to restore humanity, mm. he is not describing those fake independent films whose makers only aspire to become the next Hollywood stars, but those true iconoclasts and independent feature avant-garde or documentary filmmakers who even under today's bleak circumstances audaciously continue to transgress, i.e. subvert narrative modes, themes, structures, and the visual oral connection conventions of mainstream cinema. <laughs> you do all of those things. Cool. Um, and yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yes. So I just wanted to talk more about the ways that um, the title filmmaker, mm -hmm. when I think of your work, it seems too small for what you do. Because, I mean, in a literal sense, you have worked beyond filmmaking. But then even looking at the clips that you share today, the role of using a camera mm -hmm. seems to play a different Mm -hmm. kinds of, you know, yeah. roles across your work. And I wonder if you could talk about that a bit. Like with the marching band, it seems like maybe the most important thing was that was a flash mob at that moment that you happened to capture with the camera. Mm -hmm. At other moments, it's more carefully choreographed for the camera. Mm -hmm. So how does filmmaking kind mm -hmm. of move in and out or move around? 
the work that you do? I think I think I gave up a long, long time ago on like the fundamental values of like proper filmmaking being encapsulated by that phrase production values. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The like production and values <laughs> together <laughs> is perverse. So <laughs> I stopped caring about like maybe uh, particular fetishistic mm. cinematography issues or even narrative issues because mm. I felt as if those were really easy ways that people use to determine value yeah. without ever engaging in the work. And I thought. Um, I thought I was looking for a different kind of audience than the audience who just wants it pretty, you know? I thought I wanted an uh, an audience. I thought maybe there was an audience of people who uh, had the different registries of empathy, you know? Yes. And um, and um, fixating on, and, and pr production values will trick you into loving anything. I'm, I'm guilty of this every day. Mm -hmm. And... Um, and I didn't, and that's the other thing that I, I don't like to do in my work, which mm. is tricks. Mm. And I loved learning the craft of filmmaking, and I took it really seriously. I'm not talking about a kind of like an abolishing craft, which is something I respect and believe in, and 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 really um, treasure and honor and and the people that I work with. It's it's much more about like how it's deployed mm -hmm. and for to what ends. And what you have to do in order to get that perfect shot is often so violent, mm -hmm. so violent, socially, environmentally, yeah. um, economically, yeah. that to me, it's not worth it. Mm. Like, so the the flash mob, I knew I was going to film it. I knew maybe it would rain, <laughs> but I didn't, I did not make any contingencies for rain because Mr. Douglas, the head of the marching band, the director, he said, it doesn't rain on Ridge South High School marching band. And I... I took him at his word. What I didn't understand is what he meant was that they just keep going even if it rains. Like, I didn't understand that. So there we were, and all the lenses just froze. And so everything was just out of out of focus and, and like, beautiful. And so, like, you know what I mean? Yes. So that, that, I mean, I'm, I'm dealing with, like, errors and austerity, and mm. I'm accepting it, and I'm trying to edit. Like, the editing is, like, my real weapon, I think, because I'm wow. trying to, like, shape the material that we gather in the experience of being together and filming something together mm -hmm. that's one thing and then if i can i edit it into some something else wow. does that make sense yeah it totally makes sense yeah. but what you were saying before i'm just remembering something i heard you say years ago about shooting <laughs> how when you're talking about the violence of it because you said mm -hmm. when you're shooting something, let's say on the street, and mm -hmm. you do a lot of stuff in the street, mm -hmm. you have to colonize the space. That's 100%. the term that you use. You have mm -hmm. to tell people you can walk on this side of the street or not, mm -hmm. right? I need you to close your store, whatever mm -hmm. it is. Mm -hmm. And the way that you articulated it then, you recognized it as a kind of necessary evil mm -hmm. for a certain kind of practice. Mm -hmm. And so I'm just curious about your use of that term or if you still think about it in that way. I do. I mean... All you have to do to tell a whole neighborhood how to live for a day or so is go to the city and pay for a permit. Mm -hmm. And then anything you tell the city you're going to do, you get to do it on that neighborhood. Mm -hmm. You get to tell them that they can't ride in the bike lane, which means they might have to take a detour that puts them in danger. Mm -hmm. You get to tell them they can't wait at that bus stop because you need to set up a high boy there. <laughs> you can tell them anything as long as you have that permit. And that is, I mean... I, I shouldn't have to tell you what that is. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> yeah. And if you live in a city like LA, you're subjected to this relentlessly. 
relentlessly. And when I was in Oakland and I was thinking, finally, I've made it. I can get permits and I can do stuff in the streets and cops won't shut me down. What I realized, though, was that the cops were the least of my worry. My real worry was actually like, are these kids going to be safe if we block off this street for them to get to the the playground or the basketball court or are our neighbors going to rob us at night if we if they're pissed because we've taken all their parking i had bigger concerns than whether or not i could put up a high boy yes. you know what i mean right. and so i to, had to take a totally different tack with that film which was mm. to make it like a community-based pro- project you're listening to the film comment podcast sign up today for the film comment letter It's a free weekly digital newsletter featuring original film criticism and writing by Film Comment's editors and brilliant contributors. The letter delivers exclusive features, reviews, interviews, streaming picks, news, and more directly to subscribers' inboxes every Thursday before they're published on filmcomment.com the following Monday. Sign up today at filmcomment.com. So when you are in the process of trying to create less colonizing mm-hmm. <laughs> or even empowering experiences mm-hmm. for the many collaborators that you have on a project. Cause mm-hmm. as you're indicating, it's not even just the people that we see on screen. There it's are like sometimes whole around. communities yeah. around. Mm-hmm. What are the kinds of things that you try to build into the process to make it, um, you know, if not, you know, less violent than maybe even anti-violent. Mm-hmm. It, de- it really depends. Like um, it's a, I just try and be as porous as I can be and adaptive sometimes sometimes you don't have to be porous you don't have to be adaptive you just have to be present like in Mm -hmm. chicago i learned that people actually just wanted to know like what fraternity or sorority you're with or they had uh, they had like other concerns there wasn't so much um i don't know it wasn't about economics or like things like that it just depends on where you are sort of like what to me what the real stakes are and every time i do a project Every time it's different, you know? Yeah, 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 yeah. What did you learn in film school that you still find to be helpful for work that you do that's kind of like extra filmic, you know? Because there's so much performativity in all the work that you do Mm -hmm. and the crafting of Mm -hmm. props and objects. Mm -hmm. Is all, did you learn those things post film school? Do you feel as though the training that you got as a filmmaker fed into those kinds of practices also? Uh, all the prop making and stuff was stuff I was doing in film school and which it was suggested that maybe I should focus on directing. <laughs> uh, the thing I learned, the most the most valuable thing I learned in film school, and I may, I may be wrong about this, there are a lot of valuable things, but I really treasure all the lessons around lenses. I know that sounds really nerdy, but um, like what, I had a professor and he, here's the Anchak, and he, he, um, he explained the way a lens could just change everything. Of it. He made us shoot the same scene over and over with different lenses. And also he made us use this technique he called the moving master, which was like you had to do an entire scene just in one shot, which yeah. means that you, the camera and the actors and everyone had to be dancing together. And you just kept running it and kept running it until you did the dance. And um, I that still, is like, it's just a really fun, it's a difficult way to work. It takes a lot of time and I don't get to work that way. One, because everybody has to be really like extremely skilled and I often can't even afford the people who who, who can pull a focus like that. You know, like people who can pull a focus 
blindfolded. That's kind of what you need when you're doing movie master, moving master. Um, so I don't often get to to do that kind of work, but it was like the one of the things. And also, he never articulated that way. But now, like I always felt at the time and feel now, like that idea of the dance that he was talking about. Like there's something really powerful in that that is like yet to be mined. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's incredible. That's yeah. incredible. Okay, you um plunged us into darkness when you started off here, <laughs> rightly so, because the book oh, yeah. begins with that. Um, but you've shown your work in lots of different contexts, including all gallery contexts mm -hmm. and community contexts. I'm just curious about how you think about the conditions of viewing mm -hmm. your work and mm -hmm. whether or not there is, you know, always that kind of cinematic sensibility of shutting out everything, mm -hmm. but what's appearing on screen. You've incorporated mm -hmm. screens into, you know, mm -hmm. clusters Sculpt of other work. Yeah, yeah, like how you approach the screen and the way you want audiences to engage with your, I would say moving image yeah. work. Well, I, it really changes, but I don't often make films anymore that I can play in a single channel environment. Usually when I'm making a film, I'm also thinking about an object that's gonna be in the room or another sound or like just an environmental situation or a wallpaper, for example, that I feel is in direct dialogue with the film and therefore the film is doing some kind of work and all the other things, the space itself is doing another kind of work. So a film like Sojourner doesn't play single channel. It did a couple of times and I sat with the audience and watched it and I was like, yeah, no, it's not, <laughs> it's not, it's not, all the other things are not here. Like, right. you know what I mean? Right, right. But, so it's, it's, it just depends on the thing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. No, that totally makes sense. Yeah. Um, I'm curious to know more about your work with the manifesto <laughs> because after, again, like with this, you, yeah. reviewing this kind of, you know, um, uh, political language. The manifesto is a form that you've used I a lot. <laughs> so share why you love the manifesto. Oh, I love, uh, it's like a gauntlet, right? It's a, it's a mic drop. It's like you, you set out a series of principles and pronouncements. Mm -hmm. It's like a dare. Um, it's a complaint. It's a pronouncement. Right. And then for me personally, then I, I, I test myself against it. Mm. Like if I'm I'm like, this is what I believe. Even if I'm being cheeky, this is what I believe. Let me see if, <laughs> if I can, if I'm, if I'm doing this, you know? Uh -huh. So there's this, the, the creative, the creative maladjustment manifesto, which is just this rant about movies, which I thought about bringing into this because it, there are things I clearly like, like um was like channeling a vogel that I, I didn't realize i was channeling at the time but i was like i was like oh it's embarrassing i think i basically quoted the man and didn't realize it that's how much i'd internalized him um and i'll go back and look at that but uh that was just like this sort of rant about uh, a certain way um that filmmaker can be filmmaking is often sort of like um weaponized against people like and i was asking for something else where the audience and the maker have to like meet in mm -hmm. in space like between the screen and the seats you know yeah and then yeah and yeah. so i just like i think of them as a dare and as an invitation oh. mm -hmm. who's the audience for your manifestos actually every, any and everyone is the audience for any and everything i make like oh. everyone and anyone everyone and anyone absolutely uh -huh. i think i'm thinking of a very specific demographic like black women but 
The thing about black women, which is really fabulous, is that if you make something for us, it works for everybody else. True. This is just a fact. Yes. And so when and where we enter. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> We've been solving problems, you know, for a millennia. So um, it's it's never sort of been a barrier for me to mm. sort of like f focus my practice within the kind of like black feminist rubric because it's porous. Yeah. As it should be. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. You've been teaching for a long time. And I'm curious about how, if you use your own work when you're teaching <laughs> and no. you don't, why not? I mean, you teach, don't you? Like I do, do but you? I don't teach my own work Exactly. You're right. Um, <laughs> uh, <I> mean, <laughs> exactly. What is that though? Okay. Maybe that needs to change. I, I mean, uh, I don't teach my own work because I don't want to become the subject of the conversation. Mm -hmm. When students look at my work, they can't rip it apart. They can't say they hate it. They yeah. can't, you know what I mean? And yes. one of my great like joys and surprises is showing my students something that I really love mm -hmm. and then they just shred it. <laughs> and they actually have like legit points where I'm like, ah, oh. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Like, yes. I really love that. And I love, uh, and I defend, I like stand up for the work. You know what I mean? I do my part, but I really love like that they have the freedom to like invoke their criticality, which is what we're here for, right? Mm -hmm. You can't do that if I'm in the room with the film. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's impossible. Yeah. So yeah. it's just a waste of time and a weird way to show it. No, that's really, really interesting. And what you're saying too is reminding me of what Vogel does in the, before the beginning of his book when he talks about the fact that still images can't capture the moving image. Right that words can't capture cinema. Right. And it, you know, just sort of portends a lot of things that we are still trying to figure out in terms of how to write about cinema, maybe in cinematic forms, right. in the form of like a cine essay or whatever it might be. Right. Um, so it makes sense on another level in the way that you might think that your work, well, maybe that's not what I would want to teach my students because they have to develop their own appropriate language for what it is exactly. that they do as artists, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. I also want to ask you one more thing before okay. we take some some audience questions. And that has to do with the concept of revolutionary work. And I know this is um, the topic of a project that you worked on for many years with our dear late colleague, Robert Byrd. Yeah. Um, and there are so many ways that in content and in form, your work has been revolutionary. Um, Maybe from that project or other projects you've worked on, who are some of the other models that you would point to in terms of looking at filmmakers that you consider to have been radical and revolutionary in their practice? Well, I mean, you know, I went to UCLA because of the LA Rebellion filmmakers. And I do believe and I think the work that you did to, um, you know, restore and resurrect that work has proven that that work was game changing. It changed the film industry. And uh, it produced um, just some very tiny arteries and pathways that produced films that did just completely knock me off my chair like Daughters of the Dust. Yes. And, um, and all the shorts that Julie Dash made. Um, uh, and, and the fact that it was a cluster of very diverse visions and voices that their films do not agree and that they argue with each other within their films and they're doing all of that together. Uh -huh. They're always crewing for each other, except for, I think, was it highly, highly never crewed for anybody else? 
Was it Hailey? On his own. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Hailey was like, he got everybody, but he didn't. Yeah, bless his heart. Right. That's cool. Um, but they all crewed for each other, and they all, like, showed up for each mm -hmm. other, even while not agreeing with each other. And I just um, think as a model mm -hmm. for a kind of, like, social practice in film, they are, they are so important. Yeah. I was looking at communism and, you know, the Bolsheviks and everything because, I, I mean, that really happened. <laughs> that really happened and that's amazing and and it's scary though because it was really violent process but yeah. like i was like just looking for instances where people really from the ground up they change things you know yeah. Yeah. it can be done it has yeah. been done and it can be done yeah. yeah thank you colleen so questions yes you said earlier that guardians are subversive but we're like in an industry where there is a lot of expectations where there's like a lot of sequels or then my I'm sorry I'm rambling but it's just that we are in an industry that has certain expectations that doesn't like allow room for creativity and or originality and certain expectations sometimes like how do you plays against a verb but also make sure you don't have money factors or any other stuff when it comes to like creating subversive art. Oh, I, I don't work in the industry because you that's not possible. And I don't have a lot of money to make my work because my resources are limited because there will not be like a hundred million dollar opening weekend. And if there was, there would be something wrong with my work. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I might as well take my chance. Um, I, I, I do want to ask a little more about this question of subversion. And you brought up this amazing theme of needing an, an antagonist, an enemy. And I think sometimes you don't work in the industry, but you do work in institutions, academic, you know, art institutions. Yes. And Especially in the present day, one can feel like uh, the subversion that we do within institutions is absorbed by the institution <laughs> in this in this kind of um, you know Absolutely. capitalist circuit where where it becomes part of the institution's production and legitimacy. And I'm just wondering how you struggle with that, mm -hmm. um, and if how you know if you think that there is the possibility for this kind of real subversion that that escapes those traps. Mm -hmm. Uh, um, yeah, it's so taxing, isn't it? To like produce a shift and then have that shift absorbed and then I guess diluted by the way in which it gets sort of instrumentalized towards other profits or other interests. It's, it's very frustrating and it happens and dealing with institutions. One way I can protect myself is to be very, very involved in the conversation of how the work is shown, but I can't. I'm fortunate now that I'm so busy that I actually can't do that all the time. And, and often uh, um, work goes out and then I get like a catalog back six months later and someone has written something about my work and they've done exactly what you described where they've used the work as a, as a totemic like object to sort of um, um, protect themselves from some kind of critical discourse, like just to prove that representation is happening. And it's clear that that's what's happening because of the complete lack of understanding or even actually deep look at the work. That hasn't occurred. They're like, Colleen Smith is a black artist and she made black art. And that's like, that's like what they say about it. You know what I mean? <laughs> and so that happens all the time. And what I believe is that actually 
And you know what? I don't mean to sound cynical. I know this sounds cynical and, and, and I want to be wrong. And I hope there are people working very hard all the time to make me wrong. But I don't think existing institutions can be changed. I think the subversion happens when other things erupt and other things occur and other things are built. And Vogel describes it so beautifully where he says, you do that, you have the revolution, and then another revolution is necessary. And this is just the way it is. But I think the revolution is a much more sort of like um, uh, generative action than reformation for me personally. I don't see reform. Like I, I, I don't need to like stand in the middle of the Whitney and talk to them about their board. How does anybody get their money? Like there's one person on that board with dirty money? How? How do you have a billion clean dollars? You can't, you can't. You know what I'm saying? So like, what is the point of that? Like either show your work there and suck it up that you're complicit with the situation or, or, or build something else or do both, you know? Hi. Um, I just want to know what do you think or you find any use um, on social media, internet, as a form of expression for subversive political and artistic expression? And yeah, just. I mean, I think that is occurring even while repression is occurring. I really love TikTok, I think it's amazing. <laughs> and disturbing, um, but I, I'm just, I am so enthralled by the way people use that medium to show me stuff, to show other people stuff. And sometimes it, it's incredibly, uh, how do I say, like, I'm, I'm like completely disarmed by like some of the humanity or humor or compassion or or generosity that I get to see that's captured and then thrown out into this thing called TikTok that I get to see that I that I wouldn't have never that I would have never seen would have never known about blah blah blah. There's also the hein heinous stuff, um, but I'm lucky that like TikTok knows I like kittens <laughs> and whales and volcanoes, and so I have curated my feed so that I can see really good stuff. You know, I'll take a stab at it. It's It's so interesting to be in this setting, in this basically kind of film world, film industry-ish setting, after having been in conversation with you primarily in the art world right. side and right. art institutions and museums and galleries or, or talking about work that's going into those settings or coming out of those settings. And it's kind of, you know, it's like, whoa, here we are in, 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 in film and, yeah, and, and the questions that are coming up and the issues that are coming up, which are, 100% legit and in some ways similar because both of these worlds are messed up and subject to neoliberalism and but in some ways also extremely different and and you have a, you do have a very particular journey uh, through 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 that through those worlds and so I wonder if you would either uh, I'll give you a choice so it's not to put you on the spot maybe if there's anything you'd like to share back into this world about you know from the trenches of being in the art art industry, art world side, or simply about what kind of creativity you know, you're finding yourself, what are your frontiers there? Mm -hmm. Or if you don't want to talk about yourself, it might just be interesting to talk about what you're seeing in you know, film, lens-based work mm -hmm. and so on in the, in the fine art field and, and, and whether, there are, whether the bridges are interesting or 
non-existent or if people are just all off in, in, in different purposes? Yeah. Um, there are really different valences in terms of how work is valued, right? So there could be a work that really, really soars in the art world, but is incomprehensible in the film world because of our investments in just basic craft stuff. Like, is is, the, is can I get past the performance or um, do I know where I am? Or just, you know, simple craft issues. Like, so that doesn't necessarily have to happen in conceptual art because there is another frame that can support the work. Um, I would say that the thing that I don't miss about working in the film industry is people wasting my time. And that doesn't happen nearly as much in the art world because when people ask to meet with me, it's because they are interested in what I do. I'm not just something they have to check off to tell whoever it is above them that they've met with me, know me, and oh, I'm, I'm, I'm a quantity they don't have to worry about missing. I am able to have conversations with people about ideas as opposed to sitting in rooms where I'm waiting for someone just to process the fact that I'm interested in black people. I like black people. I like the things black people do. And I wanna make movies about them as I think it's interesting. And I have to wait for this executive who I don't know, I, did, I never could figure out like how they got that job where they had the checkbook but like I had to wait for them to just process this basic idea and then explain to me why like I didn't know what I was talking about, about my own life. Um, I don't miss that. I really, I really feel for young filmmakers and these pitch meetings, these screenwriting meetings, writers who write a script, they know how to write the script and then they give it to the producer and the producer tells them, oh, what I'm really going for is something like whatever is the hit in the, you know what I mean? And you're like, but you told me you wanted this story. And then you're like, no, make it this. So then they, they take apart your script, they pay you to do it, and you give them something that will never be made. Why? Because it sucks. Why? Because they were wrong and the writer was right. I don't miss any of that. That doesn't happen in the art world because I get to make what I want to make. And people show it or they don't, but I make it. You know what I mean? And that is why I just feel so much more empowered and free and happy uh, I get angry just talking about film industry. You can tell, right? I'm just surly. Like I just really dis I just I don't have any, I don't have any, I literally don't really think I have any memories or experiences of the film industry that I that were pleasurable. I don't think I do. I feel like every conversation I was like, this is appalling. This person I'm talking to is an idiot. Why am I in this room? Why do they have so much power and money? Why am I so broke? Like why don't I have a job? Why does this idiot have a job? Like, that's all I thought every day, every day, every day. So like, I don't, you know what I mean? And I'm sure a lot of artists feel that way too. I'm sure there's a lot of artists in art galleries who are like, why am I looking at this stupid film? What is this ugly wallpaper? Why is it my, I, you know what I mean? But it just works for me. Like. <laughs> but to, to piggyback on that though, are there aspects of the production process that you're trying to retain, especially the collaboration factor? I guess I was thinking that when you shared the footage of rehearsing before the processional. Yeah, yeah. Outside of the, you know, the Whitney, right? Like, yeah. Um, there must be some aspects, we were talking about Dry Long so earlier, of being, you know, in collaboration. What, what role does collaboration yeah. play in your work now? I mean, I love, I love a, um, a beautiful film crew. I love the kind of film crews where everybody 
knows what they need to do mm. and how to help other people do what they do well. Yeah. Um, it takes a while to assemble a group of people like that, but when it's working, it's a beautiful thing. Um, yeah, yeah, I'll leave it there. Or I'll get surly again. <laughs> no, don't go to the other yeah. the other side of it. Any other questions? Ah, yes, right here. Hi. Um, maybe on that note, um, uh, you invoked improvised music uh, in your talk and, and maybe kind of in relation to production. Uh, improvised music and, oh, okay. and, and, and improv improvisation. And I, and I assume that that is, is partly what you're talking about in terms of assembling a crew and, and, and what a production is like for you, ideally. Um, and I'm kind of interested in how maybe you can kind of sustain that through the whole process, not just through, through shooting and production, but also maybe into the audience and into like the reception, how you, you know, into a, into a, into a group like this, into a, into an, into a cinema, into a gallery. Um, I don't know. Yeah. I, I just wanted to hear more about, about that and how you, cause obviously music plays a big role. We heard Sun, we heard about Sun Ra, we heard a little Alice Coltrane, you know, that, that is in the background of a lot of your work. So maybe how, just... how do I sustain the ideas about improvisation in the sort of exhibition of work? Is that what you're asking? Yeah, maybe, yeah, maybe in, in, into, into how people even receive or like, mm. um, kind of interact with your work, uh, mm. uh, when you show it. Um, I guess that's another reason why I like installations is because that is possible that I can just create a space that gives people a lot of different decisions about how they engage with the work, how much time they spend with any given thing. Um, I'm not, I, I'm not able to think of a way to do that in this context. Do you have ideas? I would love to, to know. Yeah. We could all get up and like maybe do some yoga together. that note, maybe we'll all stand up and do some sun salutations. <laughs> Colleen, thank you Don't so much. Like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody, thank you. The Film Comment Podcast features original music by Greg Einge. Film Comment is a publication of film at Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comment has been the home of independent film journalism, publishing in-depth interviews, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, art house, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomment.com.